This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. mentioned to me that she had terrible hallucinations and delirium during that time being so profoundly sedated um, and even once she was off sedation. Um, what was it like for you to watch her wake up and still be delirious and confused? Um, that, I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly what I was referring to before. Um, when I made that decision on March 20th, the next day she was worse. Saturday, she was even, she was the worst ever. And then on Sunday, she, I came into the hospital and a doctor came up to me and said, Ms. Moranis, I have something to show you. And we went in the room and her PEEP had decreased dramatically. It, it looked like it, she was, had been at 26, and I was really afraid that she was going to receive a, a, a pneumothorax, that it was going to blow a hole in her lung, because you cannot sustain that pressure for long. And all of a sudden, it was down to 12, and they were talking about reducing her oxygen at some point. I mean, she had made, she, there was a major change, and no one could tell me why. She was, she was coughing out large chunks of this, this discolored fungus from her sinal cavity. And um, I, you know, I, I had been pulling pieces of ivory out of her mouth, suctioning it. Um, she was bleeding all the time. Her, her tongue was swollen about three or four times its normal size and was just laying over her chin. So these are all the things I had been used to. She, she, had, she had improved. And as time went on, she she eventually went off PEEP, stayed on oxygen. They gave her a tracheostomy, and then eventually gave her a passimua valve, which allowed her to talk. And I'm going ahead about two to three weeks now. When she started coming out of the coma, she was slow in her cognitive development. She was slow in tracking. In other words, when the when when the uh, physical therapist tried to uh, evaluate her her cognitive ability, um, she couldn't follow their hands. Um, eventually, she was able to do that, but she was slower than most patients. This caused me to be really afraid that I that that she had suffered a cognitive deficit, and that I had I had betrayed her past the time limit that I had promised I would not, I would not betray, that, that I, would have, I would have held my promise to. As time went on, her, she did develop tracking, 
And then she started recognizing people and she started smiling, she, um, sitting up in bed. However, there was a, there was a, a time where there was a long time period which she recognized the nurses and smiled at the nurses. But when she saw me, she just stared and she didn't smile. And the nurses would say, Bella, do you know who that is? And she didn't say anything. And, and I have to tell you, I, I went away um, at one point to be alone and I cried because I, I strongly suspected that she hated me, that she knew exactly what had happened and, and I, had, I had betrayed her. I would not find out too much later that she simply didn't even, she didn't know how to respond. She did recognize that it was me. She, she actually was thrilled that it was me, um, but she didn't know what to do. I, I completely misinterpreted her reaction. And this goes back to what, you know, you asked me how would, Things have been had I been able to communicate with her during this entire period. Um, at this time, while she was coming out of the coma, in addition to the the story I just told you about her her response to me, she was petrified. She was not seeing reality as she as she began as she developed the ability to communicate. Everything that she saw, she misinterpreted. Um, she had been through, and I would learn this later, so this is all retroactive, me placing this in the story now. But while she had been under, she had heard things, felt things, but her brain had interpreted them as being that she had been on a world journey. She had, and this is really bizarre, but she had been on a boat traveling through the world, um, and her her mission had been to um, um, take care of salvage, um, find salvation for what she called the disembodied souls. And it, it, it's ironic because these, these souls, first of all, she saw it when she was in the hospital, she thought that she was on a boat in Gloucester Harbor. And we live in Rockport, Gloucester's right next door. And, and she, she started naming all these local places like Halibut Point Park, places right near our house. In her dream, that's where she had been. And all these souls were on the beach. And a lot of the stuff she said seemed funny. You know, she, she claimed that Peter Frampton had been on her, on her boat. She, she, she mentioned that the Grateful Dead had given a concert in that backyard. Um, just, just really bizarre things. And then at one point, she... And I don't mean anything sacrilegious by this, please forgive me, but she actually said to me, can you get Jesus's butt? And I said, what, Bella? And she said, cabinet behind you, Jesus's butt. I said, Bella, you're going to have to tell me more. And she, there was such impatience and irritability. She said, Jesus's butt. And eventually what I was able to um, get out of her was that she believed that there was there was a Xeroxed copy of the infant Messiah's Daria in a cabinet 
behind me in, in her icy room and that her enemies from her dream had hidden it from her. And I had to, I had to prove to her, open up these cabinets. And she was astounded that there was nothing in them because in her brain, everything was so real. Um, she thought that the people that came to clean her room were sexually assaulting her at night when they, um, when they were just doing their job, the people that were cleaning her, same thing. Um, she, she thought everyone was an enemy that wanted to harm her. Mm. Near the end of her ICO stage, um, I was asked to come in early in the morning because no amount, no amount of benzodiazepine, um, regardless of the type, would keep her sedate. The only thing that made her calm when she, when she woke was my presence. I would hold her and, and, and that would, that would keep her calm so that they could go about their rounds and she, she, she could get through her day. And, and that's what we did to the point where she, she left the ICU and moved on to, to rehab where she spent another month, but none of this stopped. The, the, in fact, when, when she entered rehab, um, her, she, she, she couldn't add one plus one. She couldn't identify who was in the White House. She, her cognitive capacity was, was, was at the, basically the worst I could have imagined. Um, she, at that point, she did know who I was, but she, she didn't know where we lived or anything like that. Um, and her fears really heightened. Um, and there are a litany. I, there's so many different things that um, she fabricated, um, she hallucinated on. And the, the biggest mistake I made was that when she went into rehab, I thought we were out of the woods. I saw it as, as a period where we, had, we, we finally, we, we had received a miracle and she was gonna recover. And during the week, she, she was engaged in physical therapy with the PTs and, and the different aides. And I took it as a time that I could recover because I was a mess. I, the only thing I had done was given myself sleep. I, might, I hadn't kept a good diet. Um, I, hadn't, I had stopped exercising. I just, I, my, like I said, I had become an, an automaton my focus was getting on to the hospital. And I, that's all I did every day. I lived on black coffee, Diet Coke, and that's it. And when, when she finally went to rehab, I wish someone had told me, this is when you, she really needs you. This is when she's coming out, and this is when these drugs are gonna nail her. This is when she's gonna be scared to death, and she was. But the problem is, she didn't have the expression. She did not have the ability to express to me verbally, um, through, through facial gestures, any, any type of gesticulation that she was afraid. And in fact, her, her actions were comical to the nurses, to the aides, and I didn't know any better. I, I humored her. And it wasn't until much later when she was able to to verbalize what she had truly felt, that I I realized everything she had gone through, and it 
I, there's no way that I can um, overstate how important it is that a caregiver listen, listen, listen to, to the patient because they're going through hell. They are absolutely going through the worst thing they've ever been through. I would, I would equate it to my, my, my brother-in-law is a war veteran. He was a colonel in the Marines. Um, he's involved with uh, soldiers that have PTSD. And the only thing I, I can equate this to are, are what, what people suffer when they come back from war and they've seen things that no human being should have to see. Uh, I've been involved with closed groups on Facebook of sepsis and ARDS patients that are going through this. I've been doing this for several years now, and I have heard hundreds of people express exactly the same symptoms, fears. Some of them assume are suicidal. They don't want to live. They, 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 they question about when they're going to return to their normal state. And the truth is that they're probably in their normal state. The, the key for Bella was to accept that where she is now is her normal state. And that's a whole nother part of the post ICU, post um, arts, post rehab phase. That's a big discussion is learning how to accept that you lived, that you're a survivor and to enjoy life with, with um, how, you, how you exited this crisis. I've rambled and I'm gonna stop right there. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And, and for Bella, how long was her rehab journey like? How long did it take for her to walk again? And how long until she could communicate, tell you one plus one and who the president was? How long did that take? From a, from a cognitive standpoint, um, she came, she entered rehab April 15th and came home a month later. So it was mid-May. And she was stunned because she wanted to know where the snow was. When she, when she entered the hospital, the, it, was, it, was a, it was a season up here where we had a lot of snow. And everything, you know, obviously everything was white. And now we had flowers blooming and she's a gardener. So she was, she was so confused. And 
she didn't comprehend what had happened for the last three months. And I tried to explain to her um, when she was in rehab, I took her out one day to the garden. Um, the first time I took, she, she, she had been out of the hospital since entering it. I took her out in a wheelchair and I tried to explain what had happened and she was thoroughly confused. Um, she, she tried to absorb, but I know she didn't grasp everything, but it startled her. She lost three months of her life. Um, I would say near the, near the end of her rehab period, she, she could definitely calculate um, one plus one, probably, you know, single digits. She was, she was starting to read, but she was slow, um, slower than the average patient. And that was a real concern. You know, the, the people that, um, if I remember correctly, the people that assess the cognitive skills are called the occupational therapists, the three different type of therapists, one, one's occupational. And they're the ones that assess your ability to do things, et cetera. And Bella actually got really angry because she felt that her therapist, when she was correcting Bella's reading comprehension of basic, basic paragraphs that you would take out of a probably eighth grade reading level, you know, magazine or whatever, um, was incorrect. Uh, she asked me to come to one of the meetings because she didn't believe her therapist. And, and I realized that Bella was, the, the therapist was, was right. Bella was wrong. And, and I mean, we're talking about my wife who was highly cerebral. Her, she was the, the head of a business systems con, consulting division in, in, in a major mutual funds bank. I mean, all she did was write, analyze. Logic was, was the focus of her life. And now, she had the inability to comprehend eighth grade, uh, eighth grade writing. So um, this was major. Um, so I, I answered that question on the cognitive and um, that had a major impact on her. She, she definitely um, did incur um, some cognitive damage because she knows that she, she just can't do the work the intellectual work that she did before, and she's tried. She's taken tests. She went back to work, but not. She can't. She can't function at the level that she was before. And these are these are all things I'm telling you this in a short period of time. But this, it took it took years for us to to reach the level that we could accept. This is the new norm. Um, and the the. It, this wasn't anything that I was proactive about or, or like I knew what to do all just by default because I didn't know anything. Um, and I was a husband. I listened. I listened attentively. I listened to everything. And, and I, I was, I was highly observant of, of changes, nuances, uh, variations in her. And I would ask a lot of questions and answer her questions. And that, and that dialogue going back and forth helped us to breach a lot of the issues that she was facing as she went through this period. 
she at one point said to me, um, I'm a writer and I had been writing a novel. Uh, I had been writing a novel when Bella came down with arts. And of course, I just put that aside. When, when, she, when she came out of rehab and I went back to writing and, and, and doing the things I had been doing earlier, um, she asked me, she said, can you write about what happened to me? Because I want to understand it. And then, and she did this because she didn't want to read the medical journal. So I, I decided that I would write a memoir. I couldn't do this for a while. I didn't want to face it. I, I, I did not want to relive going everything that I had just gone through. So it took some time for me to start. But I did write a novel, excuse me, a, a, a memoir. And Bella, after two years, did eventually go through her medical records and finally face what had happened to her. And that, that was a huge step in accepting what had happened to her so that she could accept that. And the, it's these emotional issues that at that point in her rehabilitation that became paramount, that, 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 that were more important or, or more strategic to her her progressing than the physical ones. She had, she had already reached the point where we knew what her physical limitations were. What was more important now was dealing with the phobias and the fears. Um, it's, it's been 12 years and she still suffers nightmares. She, she has to take drugs to fall asleep. She has tremendous insomnia. Um, can never fall asleep. Every night is a major deal falling asleep and that never happened to her before. Um, she developed restless leg syndrome, which is neurological. Um, she developed pain throughout her, all her nervous system, all the joints that is very similar to uh, rheumatoid arthritis. There were a lot of, there were a lot of um, residual vestigial effects that she deals with right now. She, her body can't go any further. And where she needed only about five or six hours sleep a night before she had ARDS, now she needs 12 or more. If she doesn't get that, she's, she's, she doesn't function as well. And how has this all affected you? How long did it take to go back to work afterward? Um, and do you feel like you have any residual PTSD from this? I went back to work. At, at the time she came down with ARDS, um, my life, I, I, I had a dual career as a business systems consultant in financial services. And on the side, as I mentioned, I wrote. Um, it, was, it was probably six months after Bella came out of the hospital, out of rehab. And then, of course, after I should mention it, when she she was she had inpatient rehab for one month, and then she had outpatient rehab for three months. And I, I would drive her to that until she was able to drive on her own. So I would say it was about six months before I took a job. Um, PTSD. I react. I I find myself reacting to any 
any movement that, that seems irregular, she may trip. You know, she, she's, she's lost the ability to um, function um, just physically the way that she had, her dexterity. Um, I react to whenever I perceive that she may um, be coming down with tachycardia. Um, if if I if I can sense sometimes when um, she seems foggy and I and I and I suspect that she's suffering some cognitive deficit, I know it's affected me, and it, it's probably made me it's probably made me more nervous, more attentive in that respect. But it's also it also is I think I I think it's made me just look at death. Um, the way I feel death should be looked at. This started with the with the brain aneurysm and, and was just, I think, compounded with ARDS. I mean, a lot of people, whenever I mentioned what happened to Bella, they don't want to talk about it. All the, they, didn't, they don't want even want to hear the detail. So I've learned not to, I just say she's, she got sick. And, um, but from my perspective, you know, death and sickness is a part of life. And, we, I think we have healthy conversations about, about death. And so I guess from that spiritual, emotional, cerebral standpoint, um, our life has changed and we don't take anything for granted. Um, I, I do know that I will never, ever leave, um, separate from her if we've had an argument. I will, I will never miss a night kissing her goodnight. Um, because you never know. Um, I, I, life is sweeter. Life, my relationship with her is far sweeter um, simply because I know how precious she is. There, there, there's, something, there's, there's something I can't quite express with words, perhaps because of the anxiety of doing this interview, maybe I'll know later, but there's... there's is something transcendent about the relationship I have with her because of what we've been through that makes us far closer than I ever thought I could be to another human being. And that's a good thing. And so I, in a lot of ways, we look at the good things and that's what we try to um, help other survivors do. And there are people that have lost limbs, can't get out of bed, just horrendous things due to sepsis. And or people that have that have lost family members. And acceptance is really the only thing. There's nothing else you can do. Um, you can't go back and change. It's something that happened. And um, that acceptance is a huge deal, is a, is, is a huge change is a huge improvement in both of our lives because I believe that's the way God wanted us to be was to accept our circumstances to the best of our ability and to rely on him for, for guidance. You know, a guy once told me, a minister once told me that um, about what he called the flashlight method. We can't see into the future. All, all we can do, it's like we're walking in the dark and all we can see is what the flashlight shows, the cone of light 
four or five feet ahead of us. That's all we can do. So we can trust God to that point. But we don't know what's ahead. And I, I have found that's how I live my life. I, I'm only shown a little bit. And Bella's only shown a little bit. And we have to trust and accept and go forward. And it reduces anxiety overall, certainly from the way I think I led my life before. Not entirely. I'm human. But I find that's been the major change in my life. And I think Bella would probably corroborate. Well, you guys have an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that wonderful insight into the caregiver's perspective. Bella is lucky and blessed to have such an attentive spouse and one that's hung in with her thick and thin. Appreciate your willingness to share this with us. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.